So over the past while, we've encountered Joshua's walls, we've seen Ruth's radical redemption, we've witnessed Esther's timing, we've encountered that famous haircut in the story of Samson, we've faced our giants in the story of David and Goliath, we've encountered talking donkeys, we've talked boats, rain and rainbows and Noah, We've had talk of dreams, coats, and jealous brothers in the story of Joseph. And today, we're talking meat baskets and fleeces. So here we are for one last time looking at one of the Bible's colorful characters. And just as we did with the other characters in this series, what we're hoping to do is just to give an overview, to paint a picture, to give an overall impression of someone's life, and then ask, how does that story apply to us as we try to stumble and fumble our way around faith in our own individual families, situations, and circumstances? But the hope, as has been the hope with all the other characters, is that once you've heard the story, that you'll then go away and spend some time engaging with the story for yourself and asking yourself two questions. Is there anything new that I heard in the story this time? And is there anything in the story that makes me want to live my life differently? And as we have seen with each of the characters that we have encountered, there are two ways of approaching the story. We can look at what is said, the words, the language, the tone, the dialogue, the interactions, or we can ask ourselves the interesting question, why is what is being said being said? And it's from asking that other question that we can encounter some of these familiar stories from fresh and new angles. Now, I have to give you a bit of a confession as we start this morning, because until I started preparing this sermon about Gideon, I have to say it's not one of the stories that I was overly familiar with, because up until this point in my life, all I really knew about Gideon was that he leaves Bibles in hotel rooms, and I got one from him when I started secondary school. So this sermon has been a learning curve for me. But the thing I've discovered is the more that you read and reread this story, the more you begin to see that it's actually quite a messy story. There's a lot of weird details. There's a lot of weird things going on. But the more time that you spend with the story, while it may be messy, you come to discover that actually that mess is actually quite a beautiful mess because it can really speak into our own lives and experiences today. So just as we have with each of the other colorful characters, what we're going to spend a little bit of time doing initially this morning is to give the context in which this story happens. Because as we come to these stories of different biblical characters, we pick the story up mid-flow. There's been stuff that's been going on before that actually we need to understand to properly get the gist of the story we are encountering. Because the story of Gideon, as we encounter it, we must remember, is part of the larger scripture narrative. It has to fit within the wider framework of what is going on in that book that we find in our pews, the Bible. 
So let's pick up the story of Gideon. Well, Gideon, the story, as we know, is in the book of Judges, which we know uh, is part of the larger story of the children of Israel. And by the time we reach the story of Gideon, the children of, of Israel have left Egypt. You'll remember how they were brought out of Egypt by Moses. They were led into the wilderness. They journeyed about for 40 years. The, the plagues happened while they left Egypt. And during the time that they have been wandering, they have developed a real sense of identity because there's been that constant refrain issued to them that they are in actual fact the children of God. They are God's chosen people. God has something that he wants to do through them, and they are going to help him accomplish things in the world. And through their line, things are going to change. So by the time we come to the story of Gideon, the, the Israelites have crossed the Jordan. They've entered the promised land. They're finally in this place that God has promised to them. And this means a lot to them. But one thing has yet to happen. Because in the book of Judges, we still don't have a monarchy and the people don't have a king. But during this period, what we witness is the people of Israel constantly clambering for a king. But God keeps saying no because he is in actual fact their king. But with the Israelites, it's almost a case of there's no show without punch because they see everybody else has a king, they have a king that, they can, that can be seen, and they want one too. Now remember what we said earlier. The children of Israel had been called to live differently in the world. They were called to be different from all the others around them. And what do we see here in the book of Judges? Well, basically we see them wanting just to be like everyone else. So what's the pattern, if you will, in the book of Judges? Well, as the story unfolds and develops, what we see is that the same kind of thing keeps happening over and over and over again. Because the Israelites have been given this identity by God. They know who they are. They've been in the wilderness. They've entered the promised land. But now that they're in this place of security and safety, what we witness is actually some of the Israelite tribes deciding that, well, that God was great. He brought us through all that. But now we're in this new place. I actually want to worship some of the gods and idols of the people groups who still remain in the land. So what happens? God, at individual times then, sends a judge or a figure to deliver them because we witness that those gods and idols and people groups are actually invading the land and taking it from the Israelites. And then what happens after the judge delivers them, the judge typically dies, and then the children of Israel enter the same vicious cycle all over again. So the story of Gideon, if you will, kind of marks a center point 
in the book because we actually learn more about Gideon than we do about any other judge in the book of Judges. So by understanding Gideon, maybe this morning we can understand a little of what is going on in the book of Judges as a whole. Now, they say that you can learn a lot from a name, and this is definitely the case with Gideon, because his name means destroyer or mighty warrior. So it's clear that the the parents of Gideon had big intentions for this little boy when he grew up. So he is to be a mighty warrior. But we need to ask ourselves the question, what state are the people of Israel in when God enters, or when Gideon enters the fray? Well, it would be fair to say that they had seen better days. And that would be quite an understatement because as we reach Judges chapter 6, we read to get, that we read together this morning, we see that the Midianites have overrun the land. The Midianites are the kind of people that you really don't want to get on the wrong side of. The Midianites were the first people to tame camels, and now they're in the Israelites' land, crushing their crops and destroying the land. And they're oppressing the people so much that the Israelites now find themselves not occupying this promised land, but hiding and living in caves and holding on for dear life. Now, before we hit the story proper, there's one last piece of information that we need to keep in our mind. Because there's a constant refrain from God to the children of Israel right throughout the Old Testament. And it's about remembering. It's about remembering who you are, where you came from, and where you're going to. So what exactly does the text say? Let's pick it up at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt. But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hands of Midian. Remember who you are. Gideon does indeed, as we read in that passage this morning, remember exactly who he is, where his people have come from, the story into which he fits. But he's also presented with the current reality. Because here are these, this promised land that the, the children of Israel have been promised, and yet they're living in caves. So it's not so much a case of remembering what God had promised, rather it's about having a hard time believing it when faced with the current situation. Because on a day-to-day basis, Gideon and the people really aren't living in the joy and promise that was made to them. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go out in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? 
My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and I will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If I have now found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. So Gideon's having a hard time believing. And for him, a way to help that believing might be if God would provide a tangible sign to him that it's actually the Lord that is speaking to him. He wants to make sure that there's no misunderstanding going on here. And the angel seems to oblige and waits while Gideon goes to bring an offering. So what happens next? Verse 20. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat with the unleavened bread, with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Now what more proof, if you were Gideon, could you need that this actually was the living God, but the offering that you have brought being consumed by fire. Do you remember fire is a motif for the children of Israel? Do you remember God appeared to Moses in the burning bush? And here we have the offering being consumed in smoke and flames. Now this encounter between Gideon and the angel really is quite strange and startling, and it seems to come from nowhere, because one minute Gideon is just working, and the next he's being greeted by an angel coming to him with an instruction about what God wants him to do. Now remember, at the outset we said that some of the children of Israel, some of the tribes and the children of Israel were turning their back on God and worshipping other gods and idols in the promised land where they now find themselves. So we discover in the text that God then gives Gideon a command, and that command is to tear down or destroy the, the, um, there's a sacrifice to the god Baal. So what Gideon is to do is he's to go out get a bull, burn a bull on this sacrifice to, to Baal. Then he's to build another sacrifice to God, and he's also to burn a bull on it. But there's only one slight problem when you read this story, because who built the, the um, sacrifice to Baal originally? Well, actually, it was Gideon's dad. You couldn't write this kind of stuff in standards if you tried. So can you imagine Gideon's apprehension as God commands him to destroy the very altar that his father has built? So being a bit resourceful, Gideon thinks that maybe when's the best time to do this? And the best time maybe is under the cover of darkness, because nobody would really see that it was him. Under the cover of darkness. Flick forward from your Old Testament to your New Testament, and many of us are familiar with the story of the rich rung ruler who comes to Jesus to try and figure out what he needs to do in order to gain eternal life. Because things are always easier in the darkness, because there aren't as many people around to see what you're doing. But the thing is that someone's always able to work out 
who did what. And so it is in the case of Gideon, because the people are able to figure out that it is him, and as you can imagine, the Midianites, who are these angry, oppressing people group, aren't at all chuffed at what Gideon has done. So there's going to be a battle on an epic scale. And what do we witness? Well, we witness Gideon once more looking for a sign. Not content with the sign that he had already got, but he wants another. Gideon said to God in verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And God turns up, does exactly what Gideon has requested, but still not enough for Gideon. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with a dew. The first test with the fleece, maybe a little easy. So Gideon comes back with another one to test God. And God shows up. So we've had three signs now that really God does want Gideon to be the leader of the people and to lead them into battle. So he does what any military leader would do and assembles his troops. And he thinks, like most military leaders, well, the bigger the number, the more chance of success. So he rallies 22,000 men. And God says, okay, hang on a minute, too many. What I want you to do is scale things down to 300. Now, what happens if you read the rest of the story, is actually very interesting. Because as we encounter the story, we discover that actually most of the Midianites kill themselves. There's not much effort required on Gideon and his men. So as you can imagine, having led the people into victory, Gideon is now really popular with the Israelites. And remember at the start how we said that the people were constantly clambering for a king, well, guess what? Gideon's great feats on the battlefield seem to suggest to the people that he should be their king. And of course, Gideon replies, no, I'm not going to be your king. I'm not going to run a rule over you because he remembers the story. He remembers the narrative that God is actually the people's king. But what he says and what he does are two different things. Because while he may not want to be the king, he does come up with a clever idea. Because they've destroyed the Midianites, the Midianites had gold, and he decides that all the people should give him a bit of their gold that they have taken, and they melt it down, and they make a statue of him for people to worship. Gideon then goes on to conceive 72 sons, and even gives one of them a name that means my father's the king. Now, if you're not trying to be a king, why name your child my father is the king? So, what are we this morning to take from this story of Gideon? There's some weird stuff going on here. We have offerings, we have sacrifices, we have dry fleeces, we have wet fleeces. What 
is going on. Well, the interesting thing with the Gideon story, just like it was with the Samson story, is that when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, we read that Gideon is actually included on the list of heroes of the faith. This guy who's walking around, clambering for signs, constantly doubting God, makes the list of people we should aspire to be. An example maybe of God using the people you least expect. Definitely. One scholar comments that there is no other judge to which God promises so much divine assistance as Gideon, and no other judge but Gideon who expresses so many doubts in God. But even in the doubting, God still uses Gideon. God can use you if you let yourself be used. I suppose as I was preparing this, my mind flicked back to a night that Chris Hunter did um, in one of his articulates on doubt. And one of the most powerful things in that evening for me was that there was a place provided for people to share their doubts, to acknowledge it, to name it, but then to leave in God's strength. Doubt. How do we handle doubt? Now, one of the other interesting things in the story for me was that when God calls Gideon, Gideon responds by saying, I couldn't do that because I'm from the weakest tribe. I'm the weakest of the weak. Yet look what Gideon accomplishes with God's assistance. Maybe this morning as we come to this story, it's not so much about our strength Maybe rather, it's about God being seen through our weakness. God being seen through our weakness. This morning, as we prepare to leave here, as we prepare to go into a new week, as we prepare to head to work, as we prepare to move and um, relate in our own individual family circumstances, as we prepare to interact with friends, as we prepare to do whatever lies ahead, this morning, what could God be calling us? What could God be calling you? What could God be calling me to step into with our strength this morning? God can use us in our weakness. He certainly used Gideon in his weakness in mighty ways. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for the example of the life of Gideon, the reminder that you're not looking perfect people because there are none, that you're looking for those who are broken and weak, that they may be strong in you. We thank you that you're a faithful God, that you protect your people, that you love your people, and you strengthen your people to serve you in unlikely circumstances. We pray that you would take us We pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us, equip us, lead us, guide us into all that lies ahead, accompanied by your strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.